This podcast is made possible by the generosity of listeners and viewers like you. Kindly consider a contribution through Patreon or PayPal. Links are in the details box. Any amount is appreciated. And follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The handle, The Beirut Banyan. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And to stay updated with video releases, subscribe to our YouTube channel. Thanks for listening, and thanks for watching. I'm Rani Shatar, and this is The Beirut Banyan. don't think the journalist's job is to defend the case of a country. The journalist's job is to give is a, it's an access for uh, information, it's to give people the information they need to know. And they can make their own opinion. Now, you have to do that in the most authentic, noble way possible. But I don't think the journalist's job is to change someone's uh, mind. Unlike uh, what you do, I suppose, right? Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. That's true. Yeah. yeah. What you do is you make sense of all the information that we give and you form an opinion and you try to be as yeah, as uh, honest about it and you try to persuade people uh, or like uh, express it as honest as possible and you try to persuade people with it. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. That is absolutely true. Yeah. Uh, no, uh, I, like, I was asking for you to explain uh, what you do exactly like uh, how do you see the difference between a journalist and your job that's really funny someone asked me this just outside a few minutes ago that were you telling them no. to ask oh. yeah yeah maybe i yeah. have uh, people everywhere so i'll uh, yeah we can get into this a bit and we can keep it a bit loose tonight and feel free to ask me too i want this to be both of us together um i get offended when anyone considers me a journalist because there's a lot of training and you got some of the best training, thanks to Abby, sitting in the back. I don't have that. I'm not a reporter. I'm not doing the endless fact-checking uh, fact or sourcing or the grind. I'm just taking all of that, digesting it, and you're absolutely right, trying to make sense of it. But that journey is not a journalist's journey. And when I write, I'm not writing reporting. I'm writing opinion or what I think of as analysis, which leans on opinion. So you're absolutely right. There's, there's a lot of skill involved in being a journalist. I'm not a journalist. Which brings the question, how do you choose the media outlets uh, that you read? How do I choose the media outlets? I mean... Which I, media outlets and how do you choose? Like right now with The World, for example, which media outlets are you mostly following? You said in Lebanon. Uh, Lorient today. Okay. And to be fair, this is Beirut as well. Okay. I don't read French. So EC Beirut translated. Yeah. So I, and sorry, I do read, this is going deeper, I read the journalists abroad working in international companies covering this war. I do look for them. Okay. And this, this can be regional or sort of London-based or New York-based. And do you still see them as the same credible people? as before the war, given, given the bias that we are seeing in Western media nowadays? The reporters or the, just the talking heads? Both, the, both. The reporters and the newspapers they work uh, at. I, I don't know if I can 
I don't know if I have the, I don't have enough insight, I think, to know the evolution of the standard from individuals, but I think Lorient today is doing as well now as it did a month ago, and I know Lorient today is in good hands, and I actually know that some of the former journalists are here, they work in different outlets now, but I like those outlets more thanks to them being in Lorient today. So that, I think the standard remains high. But local, local media. Well, that's, that's but, local. Yeah, but the Western journalists, Western, the, the ones who work in international media outlets that you mentioned, hmm. do you still trust them as before? I, I the outlets they work in, the newspapers, and themselves, given what we are seeing nowadays. In reference to how they cover that conflict? Given the obvious bias of Western media nowadays. Oh, I see what you're I don't think their bias has... Uh, changed a month ago till today. It's the same. It's the same way of covering that story. That hasn't changed that much. Are you asking in a bigger picture? Yeah, yeah. Like, uh, so you, you're saying your perspective on them has not changed because the bias has not changed. But I guess it's more. I mean, to the general public, the bias is more clear now, and I do think it's different because in times of peace. Newspapers that are funded by corporations or funded by whatever, maybe they allow their journalists to have more independency than they would in times of war. Times of war are more critical. So that independency some, sometimes uh, disappears, like in times of war, disappears. Um, yeah, what do you think? I think you know them better than I do and how they've covered, and you'd probably follow them deeper than I do. I haven't seen a shift in bias personally, okay. but that's my experience. And those that I didn't trust before, I don't trust them now. Okay. And those that I leaned on before, I continue to lean on. So that hasn't changed that much. All right. And to be fair, 90% of what I read is Lebanese reflection on what's happening too. The 10% is constant. Um, I'll give you an example, Kim Rattes. She writes for The Atlantic sometimes, but she's mostly on television and occasionally on CNN. She's that kind of journalist that I continue to trust fully. And I, I, I don't know if that's a good or bad thing. But her, her reflections today are as impressive as they were before. No, it makes sense. Like the journalist would build credibility over time. I sat with Dalal Ma'awad a few weeks ago. I think of her the way I thought of her before. Yeah. Uh, but if you're thinking about outlets and how they cover... It's the standard practice to me. I don't expect more or less. That's pretty much how I've seen them cover this conflict for years. I see, but the, but the bias that already exists before, does it make you more uncomfortable now? Does it make you view the world as, like, as, un, uh, as an unfair world like uh, nowadays? Because for me, like, uh, maybe the bias hasn't uh, changed, but... Uh, Whatever is happening in Gaza, uh, uh, the coverage of uh, Western media, it makes you think uh, what kind of uh, world we live in, no? Like, uh, it's because we're apart in age. We said this on MTV, you're in your 20s, I'm in my 40s. Yeah. Although you're turning 30 in a few days. Yeah, yeah. So it's still, I can still say you're in your 20s. I think it's just adjustment to this for a very, very long time. You think it's still the same case? It's, it, it, the, the pitch is so severe right now 
but it's not new. That's, I, I guess, what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah. understand. Speaking of uh, the media coverage of Gaza and uh, what's happening in Palestine, we part of the subjects we agreed to talk on is uh, Palestine. The meaning uh, of Palestine to uh, both of us. Um, By the way, just to interrupt, we were doing something like this at MTV. The makeup artist went to Wa'il and started changing his makeup and his pitch. That we was were, supposed to stay a secret. But yeah, it, was, it was a very like emotional moment. And then literally there's makeup on him. I have a photo for blackmail. <laughs> <laughs> and you were still smiling while you were you know, in the makeup. Yeah, so no makeup tonight. Oh, yeah. Back uh, to the issue. Th thank yeah. you, Roni, sure, sure. for this very important information. Yeah, if yeah. anyone needs to blackmail you, I've got some good stuff. Yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> um, so what, what were we talking about? <laughs> Palestine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Palestine. What does uh, Palestine mean to you? Uh, and did it change uh, during uh, recent events? Well, that's a huge question. Yes, we have time. We have time. <laughs> are, are you the host? You're the host tonight, yeah. When does this finish with? <laughs> Okay. If, if, with your permission, I'll answer it, but then I want to hear it from you too. So we can do that back and forth. It's a huge question that I don't think you can answer in one setting. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm sure you can summarize as much oh. as possible. <laughs> You've been doing this for a while. I'll, so. I'll edit, yeah. <laughs> I think this, and this may not be a popular position to take. For me, over time, not when I was younger, later in life. I think there's a separation, in my opinion, between cause and people. And I've seen that expand rather than contract. So, for example, you can cheer and celebrate and even fully believe in Hamas's operation. You can fully endorse it. You can even find ways of supporting it. You can do this in Gaza. You can do this here. You could do this anywhere on the planet. And then you can also not give a shit about Palestinians. Sorry for the cursing. And we have, what, over 100,000 Palestinian refugees here. I don't remember the last time anyone fully supporting an operation gave two cents about refugees in this country. So this is, I've seen this grow. I've also seen, and this is not like a black and white thing. There's shades of this in the middle, but I think over time, the cause became international. A lot of people cheer this cause on, usually for other reasons that are attached to it. I'm not very comfortable when I see every slogan on the planet with the Palestinian flag attached to it. Why not? Why not? I think it robs it of its true meaning, which is a dispossessed people that deserve far better, not global warming not a Scandinavian protest, and not a marginal issue that may attract some people in liberal universities and has nothing to do with Palestine. So that I've seen grow over time. You mean, you mean the holding of the flag of Palestine in any protest? Or like in nowadays pro-Palestine protests? Marxists for Palestine or whatever. Uh, every, every other cause, free Tibet, free Palestine. It's, it's almost like the, the worldwide victim, and you attach yourself to it, maybe, to get a footing on the scene. I don't like that because I think it robs Palestine of its meaning. This is, again, my opinion. Yeah, yeah. And again, there's shades in the middle, and there's good intentions, too. 
It's not that these are bad intentions. On the other side, I think nuance is dead. Real nuance. And sorry to make this more personal to me. Wa'il uh, is, uh, <laughs> is the replacement guest. Uh, that's why we're doing two episodes back to back. We do love each other, but there's another reason. The guest that was meant to be here, his name is Bashar Haidar. He's an AUB philosophy professor, accused of being a Zionist. And I think falsely accused, and some phrases yelled at him, inciting hate. He is by far the most sensible professor I know at AUB and was doing his academic duty as a philosophy teacher, he made one decision to invite an American philosopher, an American Jew Jewish philosopher, to talk about Israel and the bigger question of war ethics. That's not Zionism to me. So nuance is gone. And I think he deserves better than to be hiding at home. So I've seen that dis disappear and also Sorry for the long answer. No, please. I've seen myself change my tune of many things, including what exactly Palestine means on a personal level. As an 18-year-old, it's the flag above my bed. In my early 20s, it's reading Robert Fisk and pretending to understand everything he's saying. In my later 20s, it's picking up Edward Said books and never reading them, but they mean a lot. It's even, I'll go more personal, manning a kiosk when Edward Said died in my university campus in the US. A member of Students for Justice in Palestine. I did this. I didn't really know what it was, but I did it because it felt right. I think over time, you grow into realizing this is not the most important cause in the universe, but the people deserve something better. And the cause may be more detrimental when it's perverted. And I've seen every bad actor attach themselves and make this conflict worse. So that's my long story short in that it's not black and white. I can totally relate to these back, uh, bad actors that uh, attach themselves to this cause when they mean uh, bad things. So, um, and we, talk, bit, uh, we talked a bit about this on, on uh, MTV. Yeah, a little bit of my background, my family, from my mother's side, were involved in the secular resistance against Israel back in the days. Uh, they were part of the Lebanese Communist Party. And, way, uh, just uh, people standing, if you want, come to the front, their seats empty. If you don't want to stand in the back. No? Okay. <laughs> I think they are There's comfortable. All these empty seats here. Okay. Yeah. Um, so they were part of the Lebanese Communist Party, and uh, they didn't just want the liberation of the South. I think they believed in the liberation of Palestine back then. And I, so I come from that background. Yeah. As as you said, like as a the view on Palestine uh, changes over time, and because there's so much attachment to the cause from people who mean who have bad intentions. Yeah, you. Uh, you yourself, I mean, personally speaking, at some point, whenever I see someone advocating for Palestine, it, like uh, at, at, some, uh, at some point, not, uh, not right now, it gave me allergies. Like uh, my immediate uh, reaction would be like, uh, they are hypocrites because that case was used in the Arab world by every dictator 
the case of Palestine to suppress their own people. In the name of Palestine, we justify why Arab countries have no electricity. We uh, justify the dictatorships of these countries. In Egypt and Syria, there was a, an emergency state, and, the just, uh, and they used this emergency state to justify the suppression of their own people. Uh, and the justification for it is the uh, is, uh, liberation of Palestine or the existence of uh, Israel. So over, over uh, but over time, I think I personally went back to my uh, human self, which is that in spite of these bad actors, there is a, there is a cause that these people have been living very hard conditions. They have been living under occupation or siege or, uh, or whatever. So, and especially, and that came before, like years before the war, but especially now, because we've like, uh, I, I remember, I don't, I wasn't born in 1982 when, uh, Israeli, when the Israeli occupation happened. So my memory of Israel was in 1996, I was very young, the war. 2006 was a memory, I was a child, but it wasn't as uh, aggressive as what we are seeing nowadays. Uh, in Palestine. So I think the closest I was and the most empathetic I was with the Palestinian case is, uh, is nowadays. Mm. And I personally, speaking about being a journalist and being uh, affected by what's happening, yeah, you are more, um, you see, uh, you cannot escape the news, you cannot escape uh, sensitive stuff uh, that are happening every day. But, uh, and as much as I try to avoid sensitive videos, because they get to me, uh, you cannot escape them. And like these days, um, on a personal basis, uh, and I'm not uh, unique in this, I think a lot of people cannot uh, go on with their lives while what's ha like, uh, with what's happening in, uh, in Palestine right now. So tell me more about this uh, yourself. Are you feeling the same way? Can you go out uh, normally the way you used to before uh, October 7th? I had many guests cancel because they didn't feel it was pro appropriate to speak. Actually, Samir and I, we had a, an event in the mountains. The guest said, it's not the right time to talk about, about anything. Uh, that could be a valid argument, perhaps, but I personally prefer talking through the issue and actually challenging the pain head on than taking a stand of silence. Uh, two weeks ago, Salem Zatari was sitting here and he had decided early on for the first few weeks to remain silent, and then he let it all out on, on this podcast. So you have, everyone has the right to express themselves the way they choose. But nuance and facts, and in my opinion also narrative, are at stake. Because when you see this level of pain, this is why I wanted to get back to this. When you see this level of gore, there is an inertia in Lebanon in particular to go back to what feels right. And it's a feeling, it's not true. It's a feeling. And there's a certain segment and a certain group in this country that is winning, long-term, winning back that feeling. I don't trust it. I don't trust any group right now in this country that's pretending to care about Palestinians and has been so Im involved in destroying Lebanon. And that's where my narrative gets a bit, uh, I get in the weeds a bit, is trying to di dissect what is a huge geopolitical issue based in this country 
and also make sure that they're not winning over any minds. That's where I see a fault line. Let me ask you a question. If it's because yeah. um, I think uh, the group you are talking about is, uh, is Hezbollah, no? It is. And can I say one more thing, and then you have the mic? It's quick to forget. Syrians have killed more Palestinians in Lebanon. Syrians have killed Palestinians in Syria. Syrian meaning the Syrian army. They cannot get off the hook when Bashar al-Assad is attending Arab League summits. This man is a murderer. He's killed Palestinians and he's bombed them to death. I don't know if it's better or worse than what the Israelis are doing. It doesn't matter. But this man cannot get away with it. He gets away with it. In this country, I think we should be more careful not to let that group get away with winning over minds simply because they're practicing constraint and targeting sites as they choose. We need to go deeper into that and not give them a pass. That's, that's my opinion. Yeah, I'm not going to get into which regime was worse to Lebanon, uh, the Syrian regime or Israel. But uh, I Sorry, I meant Palestinians have been killed by yes. the Syrian regime. To Palestinians or to uh, Lebanon. But let me ask you a question. Um, so, like Palestine right now needs solidarity, it needs support, obviously. Um, if it's not the way Hezbollah is doing it, through uh, a military uh, way, how would Lebanon support Palestine? Before we go there, I wanted to ask you. I'll answer that question, but I wanted to ask you. Yeah, it's, a, it's a race between us. It's a race, us. yeah. <laughs> what does Palestine mean to you? Oh, yeah. I think I uh, answered this. No, you, you said it in a secular household that you've become more embracing on a humane level. But right now, that word, what does it mean to you? Uh, it means... Uh, you see the frustration when yeah. you get asked the same question? No, no, I th <laughs> it's, a, it's an easy feeling. Uh, no, 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 I'm on the, like, uh, these allergies I was talking about, right now, with these circumstances, they are not there anymore. I am on the Palestinian side. These people are struggling. Whoever is claiming to support Palestine, and they are either hypocrites or not, it doesn't affect me. I'm, mm. I'm seeing the atrocities that are happening. I'm seeing the unfairness. Uh, unfortunately, the whole world is uh, watching and not doing anything. Uh, what does Palestine mean to me? It means uh, something uh, very unfair. Maybe the last colonial uh, version uh, in the world... Uh, yeah, and it needs to uh, it needs to end. Uh, hopefully, it will. Uh, I don't know. Hopefully, it will end. We can lean on the only hope we have, I guess, is uh, the protests in uh, Western countries and European countries, and especially in the U.S. I think this is uh, what we should lean on. This is the only hope that uh, something would uh, would change. Because, like military-wise, I don't think. Uh, Either Palestinians or other uh, factions in the region have uh, the capability, like there's a gap in military power. I don't think they are capable of uh, liberating uh, Palestine or bringing, not liberating, I don't mean like uh, we should throw them in the sea, no, but like bringing the rights of the Palestinians through a military action. I don't think uh, it's possible. So I'll answer the question you asked, but let me go back a bit into what you just said. For me, it is still striking, even though weeks have passed to see hundreds of thousands of American Jews take to the streets in defense of Gaza. That to me was an important occasion and that shows what we said earlier that 
even when media is playing the same tune, people are waking up a bit. And it is profound. Uh, it could be just in the US, but it really doesn't matter. There are American Jews saying no to Netanyahu. And I think that is a certain signal that is new in an otherwise conflict that is mostly polarizing. So I'll say that. I was impressed by that. Uh, going into what is the solution, I mean, that question has been asked every single, uh, every single cafe, every single bar, every single household, every single episode. Uh, no, Hezbollah is not the Lebanese army. And I don't care if it's weak or strong, the Lebanese army should be in the south. And it's not, that, it's not for me to, to say that that's correct or not. That's 1701. That's a UN Security Council resolution, which simply defends the right of the Lebanese state. And that's what ended our version of this bloody mess in 2006. So we're not better than a Security Council resolution. Hezbollah is not, does not have a higher moral ground than that. So no, there's, for me, for me, there's no excuse to have that group operating the way it does. And it, it's, it's so silly to see the UN Special Representative trying to talk about 1701, and she trips over it. I don't think she's a very good communicator, and Hezbollah is full out, on display. Yeah, but the question was, if it's not through Hezbollah's way, in what way would Lebanon, can Lebanon support Palestine? In your opinion? Support Palestine. Yeah, I, I think you start. You start. You don't end. You start by. You give Palestinians in Lebanon some dignity. Yes. It starts there. I don't care for demographic concerns, or prejudice, or outright hostility, or history. Demur is fifty years ago. Demur is fifty years ago. Sabr Shetila is forty years ago. You can give Palestinians some dignity. There's no excuse. They still, until today, don't have fair access to anything. And it's not like Lebanon is a golden example of statecraft. Let them at least enjoy what we have left. For me, this is a, it's a starting point. It's not a final point. This is one of the points I fully agree with you on. I think there's a, there are lots of parties who advocate for the rights of Palestinians How can you have and, and, and Palestinians, yeah, yeah. No, no, but worse, UNRWA is to blame too. UNRWA is to blame. How can you have a refugee camp 80 years later? It's three generations. How many Palestinians are in Lebanon that left Palestine? A handful. And I think a lot of them actually left over time to third-party countries. So what are we doing exactly? You can't even tell where British Barajne begins and where Shatila ends. Ain al-Halwa, you know it because it's walled off. But you go to Dubai, there's a Palestinian camp there. You, can't, you don't know where it is. People go looking for it. That's silly. Yeah, fully. It's, it's not silly. That's, to me, Palestine. Palestine, to me, is people first. Otherwise, there's no cause. A cause is sexy. I don't think this is a sexy issue. I don't want uh, posters of Arafat or, you know what? I don't like it when Greta Thunberg wears her kafiyeh. It makes me uncomfortable, because that's Palestine gone wild. No, help some people here. We have Palestinians. I don't, and we don't, I, we don't talk about it. It's, yeah. like, it's like a, no, no, no. Palestine is Hamas right now, not 100,000 people. 
This is a very leftist uh, solution uh, for someone like you, uh, Ronnie. You know, but uh, but I, I think it's pragmatic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I fully, I fully agree on this point. I think for the parties who advocate for the rights of Palestinians in Palestine, and I think the majority of Lebanese uh, want to like uh, support the Palestinians. You can Lebanon has the capability of giving uh, of supporting the Palestinians in a way, uh, which is giving these people uh, the rights. So I think... Uh, I mean, the minimum rights. You don't have to go all the way to make Lebanon bend over backwards for every refugee either. But you have to give dignity back to these people. Yeah, yeah. and I think it's obvious that these people are not giving... It's uh, roughly 200,000 people, I think. I think Un it's unlike less this now. It's less. Yeah, yeah, because a lot of people traveled. Yeah. Unlike the Syrian uh, refugee population, which is uh, over a million... The Palestinian population is uh, around 200,000. So I think uh, if there's an intention, uh, these people should get uh, their rights. Uh, if Lebanon wants to start somewhere, uh, I agree. Lebanon offered Palestinian Christians citizenship. Yeah. Professors See, at AUB are professors at AUB because of that prejudice. This is exactly why these Palestinians are not given their rights, because that's a sectarian issue. Because if these Palestinians can vote, then... I, you have to give dignity back to people first. Beyond that, how do you support? How do you support people in Gaza from here? Your options are very limited. There's all this literature on whether boycotts work or not. I don't know. Are you hurting the Lebanese economy more than you need to? I'm not sure. I don't think uh, throwing rocks into Starbucks is the answer. I don't think vandalism works. I don't think trying to uh, do some cosmetic damage to AUB is the answer. And I don't think chasing an AB philosophy professor helps the cause one bit. So that kind of extreme momenia to me is silly. Lebanon is a country, it's not a wild nightmare. You should be able to offer at least a modicum of nuance in the debate here. But how do you help Palestinians at large Palestinians deserve a state. Palestinians deserve to end this nightmare. And Lebanon does not have a seat at the table to that discussion. The Americans do. Maybe to a lesser degree, some Gulf countries have a say now. Maybe Iran is listening more than it used to. But the answers are there, not here. Why not? Because Lebanon is weak, is not strong enough no, to, because to has, sit on the Hezbollah table? Hezbollah is a curse to Palestine. If this is the wild card, it's going to it, it destroys Palestine and Lebanon together. We should not be hosting that. That is not Palestine for me. I see. <laughs> uh, should we get to the Q and A? <laughs> wait, wait, wait. We have ten more minutes. Hold on. I how, how do you know? Because I timed you've it. not. Okay, okay. Yeah, it's seven twenty. How do I know? Been doing it this was for yeah, but that's how I turned it back. All right, all right. Good for you. I am really afraid he's going to take my hosting job at MTV. <laughs> <laughs> You're very charismatic on television, too. So, yeah. yeah. You should tell my brother and sister. They disagree. They are here. Who's? You're kidding me. Really? The family? And uh, my cousin on the left. Oh, great. Excellent. Uh, yeah. But they're so handsome. How did you end up <laughs> <laughs> it's not my right to say get a haircut <laughs> no, I'm kidding I'm kidding you give me legitimacy to keep my hair yeah, long yeah. Yeah, yeah. 
You wanted to get into uh, the issue of freedom of expression here compared to the West. That was one of the talking points you wanted to bring up. Yeah. So let's go there. You, you were suggesting it's suppressed abroad. Yeah, uh, yeah. I'm not suggesting. It's uh, it's true. Like the yeah. the protests that uh, are pro Palestine, um, like uh, especially in Germany, they are labeled. They are uh, unlawful, as far as I understand, because they are framed in a way that they are uh, anti-Semitic. But imp- uh, impressively, they are still uh, happening. This is when it comes to the protest, but I'm hearing like it's uh, from Americans, from people living in whatever uh, European country, that, uh, it's, that now, uh, today's time is very similar to uh, post 9-11 times, uh, which uh, is when you, uh, someone wearing the hijab would be given a very hard time, someone uh, whatever, saying Alhamdulillah would be given a very hard time. And nowadays, people who claim to be advocates of freedom of expression, very famous people like Jordan Peterson and uh, Pierce Morgan and people like them. Yeah, um, uh, their whole uh, identity is the freedom of expression, but when it comes to uh, the Palestine issue where freedom of expression is thrown in the bin, we were not uh, hearing them talking about it or uh, in, uh, in any way. So yeah, I think, uh, I think there's a lot of uh, bias in there from countries who preach freedom of expression in the region, and they start wars over it. But when it comes to, when it matters, when freedom of expression matters, they behave this way uh, nowadays. I think it's a lot of, uh, we're learning a lot of, uh, about a lot of uh, hypocrisy from these countries. So Germany's laws are a bit odd in that they're trying to hold on to a certain uh, history check from the 1940s and applying it to protest today in a way that seem unsettling, and it ends up count being counterproductive rather than, I think, what their intent was at the beginning. Other than the German example, and you mentioned Pierce Morgan. I don't know, we can get into this a bit. I don't like Pierce Morgan being the conversationalist about Gaza. I don't think he deserves this mantle. So he doesn't, but let me tell you something about Pierce Morgan. The bar is so low, mm. Pierce Morgan seems like the rational voice on this, seems like the most fair uh, person uh, talking about this. That's how mainstream media in the U.S., as far as I follow, is the... Uh, oh, he's is, based in the U.K., right? Yeah, His yeah, show yeah. is British. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, the U.K. as well. Mm. That's how low the bar is. Someone like Pierce Morgan, who we know is the, probably not an honest actor, can like reap the situation as being the most fair uh, host. Uh, yeah. I had this moment with Salem Zatari. He works quietly with Basim Yusuf. So they have a long relationship. He felt it was the right way to do it. I didn't like watching Basim Yusuf on Pierce Morgan. I Which time? Because there are uh, two times. I didn't watch the full second uh, episode. I watched the first one. And I didn't know if that's... It felt like popcorn. It felt like I'm going to the movies. Now, this is a war happening next door. Kind of... And I didn't... Basim Yusuf has his way, but I don't know if he was the right person for this message. Almost felt like it distracted. It became more about how to debate rather than really what's happening. But it seems to have taken off. And I I still don't watch Pierce Morgan. Even when he gets pro-Palestinian voices, some of them are defiant. I don't like the give and take with him. Well, why not? Like as a host, because I'm curious. 
because that's entertainment first. It's not. Yeah, exactly. He's not. Yeah. He's there for the clicks. He's there to create a war, actually. Actually, he's taking the war and bringing it on your phone. Yeah. I don't need to hear people shouting. And I think if Besim Yusuf wants to have a principled take, you can't, com- you can't be confrontational with him. That was the whole thing. It's almost like it's boxing. Yeah, just a small comment about this. I think this uh, Basim realized that you cannot be confrontational, uh, confrontational with him. So he, that's why he was sarcastic all the time. Right, and that's why he did the second one. But, but that's why he was sarcastic in the first episode. Because mm. you cannot confront Piers Morgan unless, except for, uh, with this attitude. That's interesting. So, yeah. One more topic, uh, and you mentioned you wanted to talk about it. It's more personal to you. Uh, you wanted to talk about the feeling of liberation in the South. Yeah. Pre-2000, the notion of wanting liberation, and then 23 years later, what it means right now. So I'll let you start here. You, and you, sent it, you hinted at it already. You were young when all of these things were happening. Yeah, yeah. But there's an emotion tied to that. It's not a personal uh, emotion. It's more... So the situation that, I mean, we're now here talking about this, uh, maybe having a drink uh, and the bar is full, but we sometimes forget that Lebanon is, uh, a part of Lebanon is uh, at war every day. The, these border villages, the, uh, the most uh, people are uh, displaced from their uh, villages. And it reminds me, not reminds me, I was a kid, it's very similar to uh, the times of uh, the pre-2000 times, when these villages were occupied. A lot of them couldn't uh, even go to their villages, and it even precedes that. Even before the 1982 occupation, uh, as far as I understand, the PLO used to launch operations from the south, like Hezbollah does today. So, uh, <laughs> so I'm uh, actually in the process of writing something about uh, these people who were displaced from their villages and what uh, liberation uh, meant to them. And if, it remind, if nowadays, uh, if today's time reminds them of the pre-2000 days, um, I will briefly go through it uh, because I don't want to spoil the article that's uh, being written. But uh, an old, like uh, someone who's uh, old, like he's, he was uh, in his uh, 60s, he was talking about the humiliation, uh, humiliation he faced during the Israeli occupation and how even Lebanese people who, are, who were affiliated with the uh, Lahad with the Southern uh, Army at the time. South, how they, South Lebanese. Army. Yeah, yeah, exactly. How they uh, abused their uh, affiliation with the Israelis to uh, humiliate their own uh, countrymen. And, uh, and he talked about how he's attached to Aita Shab. He's from Aita Shab. And uh, how he, even when he traveled after the country, he always had the urge to come back. And he even bought a house in Beirut, uh, even though he has a house in Aita Shab, because the situation was unstable. Like he had to have a, a house in Beirut. When he described uh, his feelings when the liberation happened in 2000, it was uh, like, uh, honestly, it got to me. Like, uh, it's the most emotional I've gotten in an uh, interview. And I understand uh, why some people would uh, support uh, Hezbollah. Because, uh, like, I understand, uh, I'm not saying. Uh, I understand every person who supports Hezbollah, where they come from, but I understand someone like him, why they would view Hezbollah as the savior. 
of this country. Let me play with that just a bit, and then we'll go to a break. Um, you mentioned earlier this family of secular resistance to Israel, and those were the first victims of Hezbollah, as Hezbollah grew. And that is an untold story, I think, in that when everyone was cheering Hezbollah on a national level, their local opponents were being decimated. This is a stretch of time. You flip it out on the other side. Has your own reflections of this group changed too? Meaning, are you able now to not, it's not about humanize, it's not that. Everyone humanizes everyone, it's not that. It's that you're maybe opening up because you see a population being attacked and you see a group that you know defending them, maybe cosmetically, but still doing something. Has your view changed? I mean, you touched on that in the latest interview at MTV. You said that um, for you, a Lebanese forces uh, voter or supporter <coughs> is the same as a Hezbollah supporter. You don't blame the people. I personally was never uh, a hater of uh, Hezbollah, to be honest. Uh, you mentioned the victory, but uh, <coughs> in my mind, it's civil war times. Everyone was fighting with the everyone and that page has uh, you know we uh, overstart like uh, we bypassed it so uh, i was never that uh, you know angry at the hezbollah i always viewed them as a political party in lebanon uh, i'll tell you what as a journalist the pre and after the, i now understand that um, lebanese in my opinion the lebanese politics is so complicated it's not only about Hezbollah, in spite of the fact that it's a very strong party. Lebanese politics is so complicated, it goes beyond Hezbollah. That's a, so that changed, when you know more about what's happening in detail, getting into the details of things, yeah, that's a, I think I more, uh, I view it more as a, not a Hezbollah problem, but a Lebanese politics uh, problem. So I'm going to try to wrap up the episode in a way that honors you. <laughs> That's a, <laughs> is that a joke to some people? <laughs> in a way that reflects what you do for a living as well. You're not the only journalist in this room. There's many journalists watching this. Um, long ago, I have to give credit to Robert Fisk. He introduced me to Sabra and Shatila. And if I ever had an inkling for that community's suffering, whether or not it's his version, whether or not it's his bias, it doesn't matter. A master storyteller, a fantastic book that stands the test of time, Pity the Nation, a, an Irish journalist in Lebanon, that book in hand takes me to Shatilo. So I'm seeing what he wrote about, and you can only feel what he felt. I had a brief stint in a group called the Nejdeh, it's a women's technical training school in British Barajne. I don't know if it's still there. I dabbled with these things long ago. I mentioned this to you in private once. I was part of a collective called Samidun. I think they're communists. All they were doing was aiding victims from the July 2006 war. Hygiene kit distribution. Robert Fisk took me to that cause. And I almost started a career 
thanks to that work. Anthony Shadid, you're probably too young to know him. Well, yeah, you are too young to know him. <laughs> this is when I, I was older than you when I last saw him. Everyone, I think, who's older than you, but younger than me too. Anthony Shadid uh, was a professor at AUB and a journalist for the New York Times. He wrote a book called House of Stone. House of Stone took me to Merjayoun. It took me to the South. So I suddenly appreciate more and feel more with the South, thanks to a professor at AUB that you can talk to and access right away. May 2000, I remember this, getting a watermelon and throwing it over. Everyone was doing this all the time without care. You could wave your Hezbollah flag and not be part of Hezbollah. So all those feelings are real. But I think when you're trying to reflect on your own emotions later in life, it's those journalists that I remember, the way they shaped narrative that took me to those places. What I took from that later is my own personal journey. But for better or worse, journalism in times of crisis is still essential. And thankfully, the Lebanese economy, despite its complete collapse, did not take with it Lorient today. And I'm really honored that you're sitting with me again to talk about your career. And a shout out to Abby Sewell, if she's still in the back. She deserves it. They all deserve it. Mohammed the Shama, I don't know if he's still here, who's now at the Washington Post. I did some of my best episodes when he was there. And there's others as well I'm not listing. But anyway, thankfully the economy did not kill free expression. And you're doing a fantastic job. So let's take a 10-minute break, order some drinks. Q&A will begin afterwards. Thank you, Wa'il. Thank you, Ron. Ladies and gentlemen, we are about to begin. May we please have your attention again? Thank you. <laughs> wow. This was special. So do they make love or do they fall asleep? Well, up to them. <laughs> Hopefully not in the reverse order. <laughs> wow, silence. Yeah, let's, let's make use of that before it goes away. <laughs> so there's a microphone that will be passed around. You feel free to ask anything you'd like to either one of us. Uh, I forgot to do one shout-out because uh, I didn't see her before. The woman in the red, uh, red sweater, Mary-José Daoud. Uh, she's the current editor at Lorient Today. Features editor. Features editor, yeah. So that's a shout-out to her because I think she deserves it too. Yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. She gives us chocolate all the time, and I want to make sure we give her credit for that. Yeah. Yeah. Kifu, Michelle. Okay, good. All right. So, any questions you'd like? Anyone have a question up front? The gentleman. You implied that Lebanon doesn't have a seat at the table. 
and suggested that military responses are not what's required. Um, considering that we're one of the very few countries at the border uh, and that the Human Rights Watch and the UN are suggesting that Israel is committing war crimes, isn't a military threat or just a deterrent uh, force for good in a situation like this when we witness ethnic cleansing and possible, possible ethnic cleansing and possible genocide? Um, aren't people who are able to do something supposed to do something about it? Um, so, yeah. It's a question for both of us, or? Yeah, for both. Both? Should Please, I start? You, you can uh, maybe the analogy is not the one you want to hear. In the 1967 war, which changed the Middle East forever, Israel occupies the West Bank and Gaza Strip permanently thereafter. They annex the Golan Heights, and they even occupy Sinai Peninsula. Not one shot was fired on the Lebanese-Israeli border. That, to me, is a success story. That's how I see it. There's no reason why this country should pay a price for that war period. I personally, you may disagree. I don't think Hezbollah provides deterrence. I think Hezbollah provides conflict, and a conflict that doesn't originate here. But the Lebanese army, from this, the moment the armistice treaty was signed, in the 1947 or 48, I think it's 48, or 49, it's one of those years, was applicable until 1969. That's two decades. I think that's a success. What happens thereafter is the world we live in right now, where there are paramilitary groups that bring conflict closer to Lebanon. So I don't see any reason for any sub-state group to pretend like it's defending Palestine from Lebanon. Yeah, but uh, I think the question was more about the, the ethnic cleansing that's happening in Palestine. Bring your voice closer to me. Yeah, 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 it's not. Yeah, I think the question was about the, correct me if I'm wrong, about the ethnic cleansing that's happening in Palestine, right? Yeah, I mean, I don't have, uh, it, it goes without saying, like it's uh, unacceptable. Unfortunately, we live in uh, this world but to comment on Roni's uh, point, um, in 1982, Israel occupied Beirut with the excuse that uh, the PLO existed in Lebanon. And, uh, and even uh, after the PLO were forced out of Lebanon, Israel stayed in Lebanon from 1982 until the year 2000. So I don't think Israel, uh, Israel's intention were uh, very peaceful when it comes to Lebanon. I don't know if you heard me, Roni, because I uh, you were uh, distracted. I don't know. I was actually listening closer to you. Yeah, <laughs> I wasn't distracted. Yeah, no. yeah. I'm just saying. Um, uh, whatever uh, happened before uh, 1982, whatever uh, you're saying, I guess what you're saying is that the PLO is the reason uh, Israel occupied Lebanon, or like uh, other factions. But Israel occupied Beirut in 1982 with the excuse that uh, it came here to force the PLO out, and from and the PLO were forced out of Lebanon in 1982, but it stayed until the year 2000, so... Uh, no, I'm saying it actually in reverse, which I maybe I misunderstood the question, actually. The I'm question was about pasta, but I'm commenting on, uh, on your point. Okay, I'm going to try to bring them together and, and play with them. I don't care about Israel's uh, decisions or their judgment, or whether or not they're applying standards that are higher or lower, I don't care about that. It's the fact that there was a Lebanese army at the south, at the southern border, and defended Lebanon from being part of a wider conflict, 
I think that's a good sign, not a bad sign. But Lebanon and Gaza, the leverage Lebanon has, it should not be with a Hezbollah force targeting Israeli sites that they used to target in the 1990s. There's no sub-state legitimacy here. If the Lebanese army wants to play a role that it deserves, not that this is how countries should operate. The Lebanese army should be at the border defending Lebanese territory from Israel. And when the Israelis attack, it's Lebanon's responsibility to attack, not Iran's. And I don't know, this is hypothetical, I don't know what the Lebanese army's reaction would be in this current state, but I don't want calculations coming from external powers. I don't want to wait for a speech every Friday or every Saturday, waiting. That's not a normal situation. Just from a factual point of view, I was... Uh... I was in a meeting with a senior Lebanese army guy and he said that the Lebanese army would not intervene unless Israel uh, invades Lebanon uh, by land, part of Lebanon. I mean, some of it is already occupied, but um, that's what the person said. Or if the Israeli army attacked uh, the Lebanese army deliberately, that's when the Lebanese army would uh, intervene. Just uh, factual information. At least that's what the person uh, but that's how countries operate. I mean, that's that's standard practice. Yeah, yeah but Gaza is uh, okay. It's a Lebanese land. It's occupied. So yeah, just saying. I'm not making an argument here. I'm just saying this is uh, factually what this uh, Lebanese senior Lebanese army person uh, told me. Syrian Lebanese army? Yeah, senior. Oh, senior, senior. <laughs> <laughs> I believe the first one. <laughs> Are there other questions? The, the lovely sibling? Cousin. Cousin? Yeah, yeah. Handsome cousin. Just introduce yourself, please. Yeah, uh, Ali. My mom is cousin. So, uh, and I'm also interested in politics. Uh, I, I'm a part of Memphis as well. You're still? Okay. Memphis yes, as yes, in Muatinun. You're still yeah, a member I'm, of Muatinun. I'm still a member of Muatinun. Should I'm, we give you a round of applause for that? <laughs> <laughs> so I, I just finished the podcast, by the way, while driving uh, here. It he means like the MTV, MTV podcast. Yeah. Much, it felt much. like transcending from the screen and into... Uh... <laughs> Anyways. So, Roni, you described yourself as a thinker and not a journalist in the podcast, if I understood well. Well, that's being too complimentary, and I don't know if a thinker, but just commentating. That, that's your own words, but there, uh, yes. I'm just phrasing, yeah. So, uh, and the podcast talks a lot about what's the current state and what's, what should be the normal state, but without talking about how to move from A to B. So and my question is, I agree with you regarding Hezbollah and his dominance over the political scene in Lebanon. We can't agree more. I think the, par the paralysis within the Lebanese politics are a lot all about him. But I think, what is the only, what's the solution to move from a domination into a state? Is it through foreign interference? Is it through uh, mass gatherings and protests? Is it, is it through arms, armed uh, conflicts? Or is it through an organized political program that could put on the table an alternative scene or an alternative political narrative talking about 
health, education, etc. And if you if you also consider yourself, I don't I won't use the term thinker again. But where do you stand in terms of how to get from A to B? How do you think the solution is? Because I, I never knew what's your say on that. You have a two-hour episode with Shabir Nahas, if you'd no, like. I, I, no, I, I've heard it, but I, I won't. <laughs> because a lot of context changed since, that, since then. Not really. Uh, Maybe Mu- I, I missed Mu- that. Muat Yunun changed. Yeah, I'm not here. I'm not talking on behalf of Muat Yunun right now. Yeah, I'm talking on behalf of, uh, of myself. Yeah. But I'm very curious to know your perspective on that, Wael's perspective on that as well. Because I think we can talk on and on and on and on and on without really putting a context into how would we move from this stage to, into uh, like a more politically organized state and uh, another narrative than like this is the responsibility of Hezbollah, this is the responsibility of this party. But what should we do? Sorry, but uh, before you answer, because I thought the question is for Ronnie, I daydreamed for a bit. For, so... <laughs> <laughs> He accuses me of daydreaming, and then he's the one daydreaming. So the, <laughs> you want me to, I'll, I'll, I'll phrase, I'll summarize it. Don't worry. Anjad Laili Horn is fantastic. It's like you know, it's exactly where they should be watching you. <laughs> you should bring more relatives next time. <laughs> Just the whole family comes. <laughs> I'll summarize it for you. Everything that we've talked about, and everything I think that we talk about for a living, getting from point A to point B which is what Muatinun set itself to do. Like from the current state of Lebanon to a proper state? I mean, exactly. Specific to the domination of Hezbollah. How to go out from the domination of Hezbollah? Let's stick to the domination of Hezbollah on the political decision and the political scene. We are living in a zombie political scene and like uh, everything is not... There's no politics exactly because of Hezbollah's domination. How to and Hezbollah's domination on the political scene. You, you can go first. I'll, I'll go after. I go first. Before you forget the question. <laughs> um, as I said earlier, I think the problem goes uh, beyond Hezbollah. We are now, uh, I mean, experiencing the economic uh, collapse of Lebanon. And at some point... I'm not, I'm not saying Hezbollah is not part of the political class. Of course it is, and it's a very strong party, and it bears responsibility in what, uh, what has happened, the corruption, the, the economic collapse that we are experiencing now. But at some point, the solution would have been an IMF deal. Uh, and, the, and the solution is not just the money that we would get the $3 billion from an IMF deal. Uh, other countries promised money for Lebanon, if Lebanon gets the stamp of the international community through an IMF deal. And Hezbollah at some point was not opposed to that. The people, and again, I'm not saying Hezbollah does not bear a portion of responsibility when it comes to this economic collapse. But uh, back then, the people, like, and and, and, and until this day, the people who are opposed to the reforms that should happen for Lebanon uh, to have an IMF deal, uh, are not just Hezbollah. We we know that there's a, the whole polit- like across the whole political class, people are opposed to the reforms which uh, would include distribution of losses, uh, like a lifting of secrecy uh, of the bank accounts, uh, stuff like this. So uh, 
Yeah, what is the solution? This is a, <laughs> a very deep question, I guess. Um, I don't want to say that I'm optimistic, but I think uh, with time, we had uh, how many MPs? Like, uh, change MPs, uh, 13 or, uh, or maybe, maybe more, like it depends how you count them. Yeah, yeah, and they are not the best represent, uh, representatives of uh, what change should uh, represent. But, uh, but yeah, I, I think as time goes by, people become uh, less fearful. Because, because the reference is the civil war there. People are fearful uh, of each other. So uh, as time passes and we go move forward from the civil war, people will be less fearful of uh, sectarian uh, dynamics. And I think this is where people make uh, rational decisions and would vote uh, in a non-sectarian way, which is a very essential problem of the political scene. You watched our episode on MTV, or you listened to it just a few hours ago. When you need to sleep, put Shab al-Nahas on. <laughs> it's really a good episode. And it won't put you to sleep from the content. It'll put you to sleep because we were so calm. And it was an unusual discussion in that Usually there's a sort of a vigor and passion. We were both subdued. He had to wake up his assistant who came, fell asleep on the sofa. It was great. <laughs> so we really, I think we did the right thing. I'll try to answer your particular question in a few minutes at most. Uh, this, I will acknowledge it's out of step with the more revolutionary minded. And it's also out of step perhaps with the more policy-driven data that Muatinun, I think, did for a living, and they still do, even in their current state. Three weeks ago or so, I sat with Muhammad Faour, who's, he's not in Memphis right now, but he was for a long time. I still associate him with that group, even when he's not in it, meaning it's the spirit of that group. Yeah, so the every document, every policy recommendation, and that substantial literature, I don't think there's another group doing as much work as them. But let's assume it's out of step with them too. That's why I had two hours with Shab al-Nahas. And not just him, with Jad Ghassan too, something like five times or so. So that's 10 hours, <laughs> Shad Ghassan. And others as well, other Memphid members. If it's just about how to resolve a paramilitary group in a country, I can only think of other examples where a sub-state force grows into something that's uncontrollable. You need some international leverage, regional understanding, and local appetite, and you need these things to line up, and they haven't lined up. We don't talk about the IRA anymore. It's called Sinn Féin, and it is the IRA, but it's politics only. They have not gone back to fighting, and we, a generation will pass, the IRA will only be known in history books. There was a Spanish person here earlier, ETA. We don't talk about ETA anymore, because ETA disarmed. Over time, we're going to stop talking about the FARC movement in Colombia, over time. Hezbollah in the last 40 years, went from a tiny organization, 
mostly funded and created by Iran, but not entirely, into something that has regional sway through force. This poor little country cannot handle that. And if it does, and it sometimes tries with individuals, it gets killed on the way. So that is a fact. So it's not Lebanon's burden, I think, to try to address what Iran wants from here. It's an impossible mission. And that's where I think the more well-intentioned policymakers, they get caught up in details. They start thinking that, no, it's just about accountability and corruption. And if you just encourage better behavior, Hezbollah will behave better. That's not true. That's simply not true. So there's that dimension. How do you get international understanding to line up with regional uh, politics and at the end also have a local Lebanese appetite for it? That is, I think, a very difficult task. It has to originate from here because otherwise there's no Lebanese voice demanding it. Otherwise, 1701 is pointless. Otherwise, Hezbollah will remain south of the Litani, whether or not there's international agreements to the contrary. It has to originate from here. The last time it semi-originated semi from here was Michel Sleiman in 2012 from Ba'abda. The Ba'abda declaration, which went nowhere. Was it 24 hours later, Hezbollah soldiers were in Syria. So that's a meaningless document, but it originates here. When was the last time the U.S. wanted to apply pressure for the sake of Lebanon's sovereignty in a way that makes sense? This is a generation ago. And the last time there was external force applied to sub-state groups in this country was the Civil War. So either, either, and this is my bet, if Doha in a few months caters more to Iran in Lebanon, you may well see the permanent, the permanent paralysis you mentioned of politics. I think at this point you mentioned the IMF deal. There's no IMF deal. There's no port blast investigation. There's nothing like that happening. It's going to be just sitting in this country like Somalians sit in Somalia. An understanding that there's no state that's accountable. We may move in that direction. The leverage that Iran has has not been tested in a way for Iran to rethink what it grew here. When that happens, if it happens, and it's done through diplomacy, you may, in the long term, see something working here. And I agree with what it said. It's not about Hezbollah here. I fully agree with you. And we had this on MTV. There's a moment where we talked about this. You can't blame voters for voting for this group. Like you can't blame voters for voting for any Lebanese group, especially when Lebanon's politics are dead anyway. And if Hezbollah had better politics, they should be rewarded through elections. That's not an issue for democracy or anything like that. And I always get turned off when people blame voters for Hezbollah because Hezbollah is in, its, in its inception was far more popular and far less effective. And Hezbollah today is so unpopular, despite what we talked about, it is immensely unpopular and the most effective it's ever been. It's not about democracy or voting. So I don't blame people for voting for this group. I do blame what Iran's getting away with. Can Lebanon send that message? 
I don't think so. It has to demand it from here, but you can't take security matters into your, hand, into your own hands in Lebanon. When you do that, you're left with 12 assassinations, you're left with half Bashar al-Assad parking ammonium nitrate, you're left with the worst form of Lebanon, and you're left with idiots like me talking. <laughs> the worst ending. So all of that is my way of saying shielding Lebanon once and for all is a noble goal. That's a noble mission. And I think that's the only way out of this mess. Otherwise, the more extreme, and some of them have been on my podcast, are eager to tear Lebanon apart. And they're looking for opportunities to sever Lebanon once and for all. That, to me, is exactly what the situation produces. Divorce, hate, violence, and uncontrollable ending to many partitioned Lebanons. That's the worst outcome. So that's my five-minute answer. Or six-minute answer. Four and a half? I did it. I had someone once answer the history of wine in under five minutes, and he pulled it off. I have no idea. Here? Right here, right yeah, where yeah. you're sitting. Michael okay. Karam. No, I, I cannot no. do it. Neither can I. Yeah. <laughs> you, you have the longest. Are there um, more questions? Let's do fun questions for way, uh, like, uh, you know, his dating life. And... <laughs> Hamad al-Shama, way in the back. Another badass journalist at the Washington Post. Hi, Wael. Uh, who, who's your favorite? Hello. What is your integrity? Since this is the only popular question, who's your favorite Real Madrid uh, football player? Thank you. Uh, and the history? I don't know. Zidane, Zidane, definitely. <laughs> Who clapped? That girl. <laughs> She's French. Who's your current favorite one? Uh, Luca Modric. Okay. Yeah. Cristiano doesn't play uh, at Real Madrid anymore. Right, yeah, yeah. that's the right answer. <laughs> Other questions like that for Wait? Uh, the lady in the back. Hi, how are you? Hey, I'm, I'm Wait's colleague. I'm uh, editor at Lorient uh, today. And my question is directed to you. You said that Allah has fallen in popularity. What specifically makes you say this? Uh, Considering, like, I think from my experiences, I see a lot of people supporting them even more during these times. People that would never end up in a room like this, for example. So I'm just curious to know, what makes you say this? Didn't catch the first And do you, part. like, she's do you think, has, yeah. You said Hezbollah when it cut, because eh. your mic cut, I cut, I think she's The saying, mic was cutting. Yeah. I was saying, what makes you think popularity, like Hezbollah's popularity has fallen and not the opposite? Without scientific data to to look at the exact polling numbers, I don't think it's ever been done in this way. We have elections. I mean, there's, I think, some variation of that. If you lived here in the 1990s, you were living in a country that was proudly pro-Hezbollah. The entire country? Not the entire country, no. Yeah. No, I don't think the entire country hates Hezbollah or loves Hezbollah, no. But I think, my, if my memory serves me right... It was hard to be discriminatory against that group, especially during the 1996 Kana, the Grapes of Wrath War. And when the Israelis left in May 2000, this was a national celebration. Hezbollah had local critics then, but the, and some of it may have been naive, 
in retrospect, but it did have broad appeal. And not just in Lebanon, in the region. I don't know if you've ever experienced this. You probably have. I would travel, you can't go, I would go to Syria, speaking of the Syrian regime, you'd have the Syrian and Palestinian flags waving together, and then you'd have Hassan Nasrallah in every single cafe. Yeah. So this is real. I think the broad support went all across the region. But that's not there right now. I'd like to hope so. Does Wael think the same? Yeah, definitely. Hezbollah was way more popular uh, before the year 2000, before 2005 in particular, than uh, it is right now. And as Roni pointed out, uh, after the Syria intervention uh, in the region, Hezbollah in 2006, uh, Nasrallah's uh, posters were uh, lifted uh, all over the Arab region. It's not the case anymore. So in, the, in terms of popularity, I would definitely agree. In the region... In Lebanon, definitely before 2005, everyone supported them, almost everyone. Uh, I don't before know 2000, to, I mean, it's not, definitely not everyone, yeah. but it's... A, oh, I said almost. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, it's, it's a majority of sympathy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. maybe partially because uh, Lebanon was occupied before the year uh, 2000, and uh, it's not the case anymore. I agree. I think there's a permanent damage done in May 2008 that they'll never escape. Hmm. That's something that's, they can't come back from that. And if you, if you were here then, you would have seen your own emotions, I think, uh, elevated. You could support Hezbollah on May 6, and then be anti-Hezbollah on May 8, because of what happened in the middle. So there's a shift. And there's a shift, I think, in that even today, you have some that are more <laughs> sympathetic to what they're doing. Maybe they're sy sympathetic to the actual violence itself. But I think Hezbollah, uh, what it represents, is not more popular as a result. I think it's been on the decline. Interesting. Thank you. Sure. Thanks, Amanda. Amanda. We have time for maybe two more questions. <laughs> Hi. Uh, I'm Hadi. Hi, Alexi. How are you? Good? Sorry, I don't... I think I have a question, but maybe not. I have an opinion to say. I think you said that... Uh, where are you looking there? Sorry. Me? Yeah. Oh, la, la, I'm just... No, no. Okay. Sorry, I have an opinion to, to speak about. And it was uh, about... Uh, you said that you don't agree or you don't... Uh, you, sh you think that you sh uh, Basim Yusuf shouldn't talk about uh, Palestine in Piers uh, Morgan show, right? Just to understand your point, right? No, no, I, he's allowed to talk. I think he actually, he won uh, the popular vote. It's just, he's not, that's not my way of talking about Palestine. Entertainment, to me, turns me off. Yeah, but that's true, I think. That's, that's true, 100%. But I think the Gazan people, they need someone to speak about what they feel. And anybody, I don't think they need just uh, political people to speak because they heard the political people since, 70 years or maybe less than this and it didn't go to any way so I think anybody can speak about Palestine if you have the how to say it like the sorry about my English it's shit but I'm trying my best <laughs> so I think uh, it's fine I think it's so easy I think Gazan people want someone to say what they feel and I think Basim Yusuf did 
even if it was uh, entertainment or not, because I think Gazan people or Palestinian people, they got bored from uh, political people who speak about the case. They got bored from the political people who speak about the case. So they need someone like them to speak. And I think he spoke well. I'm Palestinian. I'm a refugee in Lebanon. You said also about uh, uh, being a refugee in Lebanon. First, let's solve this. Then we talk about uh, Palestine and things, I think. Like, let's solve first the Palestinian refugees problem in Lebanon. I'm a Palestinian refugee in Lebanon. And I think, in my opinion, I am same as Lebanese. I don't feel there is any difference between me and any Lebanese guy here. I got kind of all my rights. I'm studying in Lebanese university and I pay for the Lebanese university as like uh, the Lebanese person. And I think I have an apartment, I have everything I want, I'm working, I'm, I'm doing my things. So I think also because we choose to go back to Palestine, the right of return, so it's what Lebanese government can do to solve our problems, then solving Palestine. I think solving Palestine problem, then our problem, it's better because then we can go to Palestine without being in Lebanon. So yeah, this is what I wanted to say. I agree. I just meant that what Lebanese are able to do here should not be dismissed. And good for you that you have this life, Thank which you. is Thank you. a positive version of the negative version that you know best. Yeah, I know, I know. Yeah. There is a lot of poor people. I lived in Nahr al-Barid camp in 2007. A war happened. I was there. Yeah. Thank God I'm still alive. Then after, uh, I, I think there is poor people in the Palestinian camps, but also there is poor people in Lebanese uh, people. Like, uh, so I don't think they can do that much for us when their uh, population is not doing great. So, so yeah, this is what I wanted to say. And about also Hezbollah is a curse for Lebanon. I think all the elements what happened during this period of time, like the 70 years ago, uh, all the elements, they lead us to here. And uh, for Palestine, I'm not sure if Hezbollah is a curse or not yet. But my mother, at least, she says, uh, uh, I don't want Hezbollah to get in the Palestinian case anymore. I, even when he said last two weeks, he said that uh, he wasn't uh, a part of the Tufan al-Aqsa. So my mom was so happy about it. That they don't want anybody else to get in the Palestinian case or to use it. But at least I think Hezbollah is doing something for the Palestinian case, if just speaking or going uh, one, uh, one time per week, I think he's still speaking about it. And maybe this is going to help because Palestinian people need any hope, like any light of, you know. I'd rather so, Basim Yusuf than Hassan Nasrallah. Yeah, me too, I swear. <laughs> and I, I, I mean... Thank you yeah. to hear me. No, I, I think I spoke you. a lot. Thank you. But I think my voice is nice on the mic. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Look at that. That's the weirdest ending to that question. <laughs> Did not expect that. You know, I might hire you for something, actually. I like your voice, too. And your confidence. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, well, then I don't know. Uh, we have time for one more question. The gentleman in the front. Hi. Um, I'm also a journalist, and I was wondering something about Hezbollah. So I've been living in Lebanon for one year, so obviously I don't know anything, like, I don't know any, like, everything about it. 
But when the war happened, pretty quickly, uh, Lorient Lejour came, like, uh, released some stories about uh, Hezbollah, uh, the guardian of the Re Iranian revolution, and um, like many people and from Hamas uh, gathering in Beirut uh, about like the Hamas attack on the October 7th. And Nasrallah said, these attacks were 100% Palestinians. Um, I was wondering, what do you think about that? Is that a way to uh, get Hezbollah out of the war? Like, what is, what's your analyze of the speech of Hassan Nasrallah about um, getting Hezbollah not really involved in these attacks for Palestinians? Um, <coughs> so you work at the uh, Isi Beirut, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, uh, Do you so know what? Them well? <laughs> <laughs> no, I know the news outlet. So, what Nasrallah said in his first speech after October the 7th is that uh, they had no idea. Uh, they didn't have a clue about the uh, Hamas operation. Um, Iran has said it had no idea about uh, the Iran operation. Uh, Hamas themselves said the senior members did not know about uh, the Hamas operation. Hezbollah said they don't know, they didn't know about the Hamas operation. The American intelligence said Iran did not know about the Hamas operation. The French intelligence said they did not know about the Hamas operation. So I don't have a strong opinion on this, but uh, I tend to uh, believe it, especially when you see Hezbollah's reaction in the first days. On October 7, uh, they didn't have any reaction. If they did, maybe they would have had a tactic uh, somehow. October 9 was the first attack on empty farms, and then they got uh, more involved later. And Nasrallah spoke uh, three weeks, two weeks, three weeks after, uh, and I think the reason for that is that Hezbollah did not know what to do. So personally, if I'm analyzing here, it's not a factual thing. I, I tend to believe uh, that claim. I'll only add, I think the terminology was there's every country with a spokesperson was saying there's no direct involvement, which leads to the assumption of what does indirect involvement mean? And clearly this operation, if it was planned, I think long, if you look at it over time, Hamas, I think, got away with much more than they imagined. And I think this was definitely, if you think of the best case scenario and the worst case scenario for them, I don't think they were ready for the best case scenario. And this, I think, leads us to everything that's happened. But uh, indirect involvement, I think, is why Iran indirectly negotiates over hostages in Doha. That's indirect involvement. Direct? I mean, I, I take your word for it. There's probably yeah. no direct, but these are words that you can play with a bit. And I think indirect is leverage to trying to find a way out with Iran rather than full-scale war, which didn't happen, which everyone was talking about. I think there were a lot of messages communicated to de-escalate rather than create a war in the South. In the South. So that, I think that happened. And that's the result of indirect uh, responsibility. We could squeeze in one more if it's a light question for Wa'id. If it's a fun one. No? No one has fun questions for Wa'id. I want the family to do one more. Anyone in the family. 
The brother. Yes, right there. Yes, for your brother. <laughs> they don't. I love this. <laughs> you should be proud of him. Uh, the sister. Oh, the sister. Yes, please. Well, when did you feel that you want to become a journalist? That's a good question. I did not expect it from you. <laughs> no, no, I'll ask the question to the family and then you can... Does he win in family disputes? Or does he not that all. Not you that always all. lose? I, it's as if I'm uh, illiterate in the family. Like, I'm the youngest in the family. You're the illiterate journalist in the family. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this, uh, the junior thing doesn't get uh, taken into consideration. It reminds me of uh, Lewis Hamilton, the Formula One driver. He used to say that his father believed uh, that he's a better driver than him. So it's the uh, same thing. When did I uh, want to become a journalist? I don't know. I, I really do. I cannot identify the moment. As I said, the political awakening came in 2005 when uh, Rafi Hariri was assassinated and the uh, Lebanese politics became more interesting after. And since then, I've been following uh, like a geek uh, about Lebanese politics. So somewhere between the lines. He answers more in the MTV episode. We actually, you described yourself as a political geek. Yeah, yeah. In 2005. He, yeah. he goes into it a bit. Yeah, yeah. I want to wrap it up by mentioning somebody who left early. He was sitting at the bar. He's gone. A very quiet artist who left Lebanon. His name is Jad al-Khouri. Jad al-Khouri, if you remember Burj al-Mur, when they put the uh, curtains on Burj al-Mur and it was flapping for several days, that was him. If you've been to the egg in the last few years, you'll see colored paint all over the, the ceiling, the top end, that's him. All these odd uh, cartoonish comic book characters on the Holiday Inn Hotel, and actually throughout the city, that's him. He left to Norway, and he came back just to do an exhibit in Marim Khail on November 29. So I told him to tell me before he leaves if he had to leave. It's in Gallery Tanit. Go there if you have time. It's two Wednesdays from today in the evening, you'll like his work, especially now that he's trying to reconnect a bit with the country. Also, next week is Simon Kashar, an AUB political science professor, to talk about independence on Lebanon's Independence Day and also going deep into Fouad Sheb. So if anyone's curious about this country's lost independence or its unique president, Fouad Sheb, that's next week. Well, in any setting, whether I see you on the street in a protest, when I see you late at night here drunk, <laughs> when I sometimes... Hey, this is water, guys. When that's not water. Oh, by the way, he did something weird. He got tea and then a martini right after. Yeah. I've seen this man uh, in difficult circumstance and also in a good mood. He always has the same energy. You should keep it. It's very attractive. I'd like to do this again with you. Bring the whole family next time. <laughs> And thanks to everyone for talking and engaging a very difficult subject this way. It means a lot to me. So, the Beirut Banyan on social media, Wa'il Talib Ramzi or Wa'il Ramzi Talib? On Instagram, Wa'il Talib 23 on Twitter. On Twitter. Follow Wa'il. Thanks to everyone. Good Thank night. you, Ronnie. Good job. Great job. Thanks for listening and watching. And a friendly reminder to support this podcast by contributing through Patreon or PayPal. All links are in the details box. Until next time, I'm Rani Shatah, and this is the Beirut Banyan. <laughs>